0: And let me try and answer it. I think we're on the right track because I'm, I'm not hearing anybody say, no, women, a woman could never be president of the United States. Is that right? Am I hearing you correctly? I haven't heard. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't hear that. All right. Um, and I think that it's very dangerous to try and come up with a list of jobs whereby women uh, is, uh, th- these are yes, women jobs, and these are no you know these are only man jobs i think we're we're really in dangerous territory i think we're better off asking biblical questions and there are some questions that a woman should ask for example she should say am i violating any of the biblical principles for me in my calling as a woman for example if i have children and i'm married First, uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 5 tells me I'm supposed to be a worker at home. In other words, my first priority must be at home. So does the job that I'm considering it, does that compete with my first priority? And if I had a need at home where I needed to put that job aside for a time or permanently, does would this work well with that situation? Secondly... Um, we know from First Timothy 2, verses 12 through 13, also First Timothy 3, with the qualifications of an elder, that the Bible is clear that men are responsible to be leaders in the church. It has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. Again, according to First Timothy 2, it has to do with creation order, and men will be held responsible for what goes on in the church. And when, the church, when men abandon the church and it becomes a women's organization, men ultimately will be held accountable for that as well. And so we have this idea that, okay, I understand I can't take a job in a church um, as, a, as, as, a, in a, as in a teaching, or having really the issue is having authority over men, according to First Timothy 2:12 and 13. Another question, I think, is, do the leadership responsibilities of this job prevent me from honoring God's order of creation? and differing roles for men and women in society. So do the leadership opportunities in this job prevent me from honoring creation order by somehow um, sending a message that I do not care about the roles of men and women in society? And let's just face it. We live in a society that does not care about the roles of men and women. Our society is increasingly becoming more antagonistic about the roles of men and women to the extent where the LGBTQ agenda has a major letter in there, which is T, which stands for transgender, which basically says there are no differences between men and women. And society is coming unglued right now because the T is obliterating the L and the G and other aspects of the liberal agenda with homosexuality. And we see this uh, in the NCAA, because in the news recent times, there is a a young man named Will Thomas. Will was, um, uh, he swims for Penn State. He was ranked 464th or something like that for his first three years as a swimmer in the uh, NCAA, and this year he shot up to being ranked number one. He's number one in the nation, breaking all kinds of swim records, and the way he's done it is he says he has transitioned from a man to a woman, and now he's swimming in the women's team for the NCAA, and guess what? He's faster. He's he's just gone up, I mean, that much, and so uh, people are coming unglued about this, and you, you don't have to look. He goes by Leah now, Leah Thomas. You can you can look it up. But the, the point is this, and that is that uh, once you say that gender doesn't matter at all, I mean, what the Bible teaches is a beautiful harmony between the roles of men and women, masculinity and femininity, femininity by God's design, uh, reflecting the image of God and the glory of his creation. And yet, on the other extreme, you have this teaching that Actually, gender is nothing, and that's where society is going. So um, when the question comes up about um, leadership, there are some roles that women play in leadership all of us would say, oh, yeah, this is a powerful leadership position, and on the furthest extreme, let me just give this example, would be prayer. Okay, I have this quote from John Piper, which I think sets things, uh, gives us this extreme idea of the importance of prayer and how women can lead in that. He says this quote, if we try to forbid women from exercising all such leadership in relation to men, we go too far. For example, prayer is certainly a God-appointed means women should use to get men to go where God wants them to be. Praying women exert far more power in this world than all political leaders put together. So on the one extreme, I mean, this is a powerful, authoritative act of being committed to prayer that God would change the hearts of men and lead them in the right direction, and God uses our prayers as the means to bring about change. And so a woman who is, it's a frightening thing to see a woman who's devoted to prayer or a man who's devoted to prayer. But we would all agree that men and women can both lead in prayer, in their prayer lives, be praying for people. And this passage is about women who are praying. And it says they should be praying with their heads covered. There's no mention of where this is at. It's not, it doesn't necessarily say that this is in a worship service. In fact, it's probably not in a worship service because in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul makes clear that women should not be leading worship services in the church. So the, the, the idea here is that in 1 Corinthians 11, we're talking about prayer, where you're talking to God about people, and prophecy, where you're talking to other people about God, that's foretelling all there is about God, and you're sharing that with other people, that women in Corinthian society should do that with their heads covered. On the other end, let's just take President of the United States, and let's ask these questions. Can you imagine a candidate, a lady who is a Christian woman who's committed to male headship? And the principles laid out in Scripture, this is what it might sound like. Can you imagine at, at the interview or at the, maybe a debate on TV, and the, maybe the presenter says, if you were to be president of the United States, how would you balance this job with your children? Answer, well, my children are my first priority. And if at any point my children need my attention and care, I will neglect the duties of president to care for my children. Because my God-given responsibility is to raise them, and that comes before any responsibility given to me by the state or anywhere else. Interesting. That's an interesting answer for our candidate. All right, well, uh, if you were to be president, what role would the first man play? Okay. Well... God is our ultimate authority. My husband will be judged by God and how he leads me according to God's word. If there's any issue that's not clear in Scripture, I will look to my husband for direction, and I have vowed before God and witnesses to follow his lead just as Christ follows the church. Wow, that's an interesting answer. We're going to have a president who's going to be submitting to her husband, and he's not going to be president. Okay. Well, you mentioned the church there. Would you be under the authority of the church? Well, of course, God has established the church, and it would be sin for me to neglect the gathering of the saints. Not only that, I have already willingly submitted myself to the elders of my church and asked them to discipline me if anything in my life is not consistent with the word of God. Okay, so you want to be president and yet you're recognizing your husband as your head and you've submitted yourself to the church in case there's anything that's not consistent with God's word that people in the church could confront you on that and if you're not repentant about that, the church could actually get you involved and discipline you. Oh yes, that's what the Bible teaches. All right, and when did you actually have ambition to run for President of the United States. When was this first ambition? Well, actually, my desire is not to run for President of the United States. I desire that a godly man would rise up and lead this country, and that he would direct every decision so that it brings more glory to God, who created us, and he is ruler over all, that is, God, and expects men to take up this primary responsibility. But since it appears there is no man that is godly who is running for office in this country, and... Uh, Since people seem to want to vote for me in spite of the fact that God is my ultimate authority, I submit myself to his word, his church, my husband, and that being keeper of my home is my first priority, I am willing to run for office if you vote for me and you think that I'm the best candidate, then feel free to go ahead and vote for me. Hey, how many of you would vote for her? Yeah, okay, I would. All right? If that was the situation, actually, I I should probably run because I'm a man, right? uh, But, I mean, it should be a shame. I thought somebody was going to bring up Deborah and talk about, well, Deborah was a judge, and God used her to lead a nation. And I think that's a good question. Let's turn back and see if Deborah's a good example for our female president. Let's go back to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4, we have... I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 9, and I'll stop and give some comment as we go along. Uh, just to, by way of contact, the, the, the theme of judges is everyone did who was, what was right in their own eyes. And we have this continual, re- repetitive theme of sin, punishment, and restoration. The people rebel against God. He brings in another nation to dominate them or somehow punish them. And then they cry out for deliverance, and then he sends somebody to rescue them. And those, the judges are the people that he sends. And so we have in chapter four of Judges, verse one, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And so you have this time where Israel was disobedient, and so God sent a Canaanite king and that king's name is Jabin, and he had a, ca- a commander named Sisera, all right? Then the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, and he, for he had 900 iron chariots. That's Sisera, the commander of the army, and he was very vicious. And so he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, who was judging Israel at that time, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. So they're coming to her, help us. We're crying out to God. What does he say? We need to know what God says. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take you with 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, and from the sons of Zebulun. So she gives a word from the Lord to an Israelite and says, you are to go do this. This is a command from the Lord. And what we miss here is if we read it like kind of as Americans do, we miss that this is a direct command, it's forceful, and he doesn't obey. He has no courage to do that. And so what he does is he says, um, uh, Barak says, um, actually go back, verse 7, I will draw out to you, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hands. A promise from God, a command and a promise. Verse 8, then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he's, 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 he is disobeying this commandment. It sounds like he just wants a little bit of help, but he's really saying, I don't want to do this alone. I need you to do it, and I'll be there with you. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on that journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And that's an insult. He's She's saying that, Because there aren't any men who have any courage, God's going to use a woman to do this, and the credit's going to go to a woman, and the Canaanites are going to be defeated by a woman, and the Israelites are going to live with the shame that there wasn't a man courageous enough to do that. So I'm not sure that this is the poster child for the women's liberation movement. I I, I think it's God used her in a mighty way, and indeed he can but I'm not sure that we're going to say that this should be the pattern for every female leader. And there's obviously a recognition that men should be stepping up. Yes, question. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So the expectation, even in a secular sense, is that there should be male headship, but again, don't confuse that with male domination. The expectation is, if you have not repented of your sins and you are a pagan, you're somebody who has not yet yielded yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're an unbeliever, You can expect that on the day of judgment, one of the many things you will be judged for is the fact that you did not lead in godliness when you know that there is a God who's a creator and that you're one of his creations, and ultimately, in your heart of hearts, you turned your back on God, and therefore, like Adam, you refused to submit to the living God. You you refused to obey him, and one of the things that you would have been responsible for had you submitted to him was to lead in society in godliness. So yeah, I think there will, that'll be part of the judgment universally. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. So Haig says, how does this, how does this work if, if we're, you're a man and you're working under someone who's ahead of you and who's, who's a, um, a female authority figure? We live in a fallen world. You're to preach Christ. If you're not in a position to confront someone, Uh, On their sin. I mean, there's so many scenarios. Assuming that this is a a a pagan woman who is not a believer, um, uh, and she is yielding an authority. um, We are citizens, not of this world, and while we're here, we're to live lives that are exemplary, and we're submitting to government and to those in authority over us. And so, I don't see that it's it's necessarily. I mean, let me just get this straight. I mean, let's make this clear. Our job is not to change society and the structure of society. Our job is to preach Christ who will change people's hearts. And as people's hearts are changed, their responsibilities in society should change. So we get caught up in the structure of things. Man, we're going to get there. Okay, keep on going. Uh-huh. So if, if the question is, can I lead in a God honoring way if I'm even if I'm under women? I think potentially yes. I think that that I mean you are going to. The question is, uh, as a man in this society, are you going to exemplify the type of uh, behavior and leadership that Christ expects of you? And you're not in a position to go tell other people to. I mean, I don't go tell people who are who are uh, you know. Um, In, in authority over me, um, I don't correct pagans' uh, behavior unless it can point them to the cross. So you have an opportunity to witness, but until their hearts changed, it's really hard for you to confront them. Now, if they're a believer and you see something in their lives that is not honoring to God, you can go to them. But let's just go, let's move on. Uh, I, want, I want to try and get to our text. Um. These are great questions, and this is good, and I think that we front-loaded the application and the practice by thinking about some of these. Let's take a look at the text, all right? Understanding headship, verses 7 through 12, all right? Verse 7, for a man not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So let's just stop there. We need to deal with the term glory. What does this mean, glory? The term glory is tied with the idea of honor as well. And we see that in our text because later down in verse fifteen and 14 and 15, it says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? And the converse of that, but, verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to him her. So you see how the writer of this text pits the words dishonor and glory as opposites. And so the idea of glory has this idea of honor that is associated with it. Um, And when we say that a woman is the glory of man, we're not denying that women were also created in the image of God. We are simply saying that because Paul here is aware of the creation account, and Genesis one twenty six and 27 teaches us that uh, both men and women were created in God's image, that, that uh, he's, she's not saying that somehow uh, she, she only is a reflection of the man. She's a reflection of the creator. But because she came from man, she is to honor him. She is to bring honor to men. She is to live a life in a way that honors men. And you say, well, how do I do that in this society? Well, one way, and the issue at hand here, is by making sure that the roles of men and women are something that you respect and honor. In other words... In 1 in, in Corinth, and I, I believe that this is a cultural issue for Corinth, the head covering issue. I think that there are women who wear head coverings today and believe they should because of this passage. There is no sin in them doing that, and I don't want to condemn them for doing that, and I think it shows a great devotion and honor for others. However, I'm not sure that in our society that necessarily conveys to people, oh, they're honoring the creation order and male headship. That is the intention that they have for it, and they literally apply this to themselves. I think there was a cultural issue in Corinth that was not necessarily in other cultures. It could have been, and there's some debate on this, when Jewish head coverings for prayer originated. Some say the fourth century, but there is some evidence that even in the first century, Jewish men covered their hair. And there's a sense in which Paul could have been writing to Jews who were in Corinth saying, That thing makes you look like a woman when you do it in Corinthian society. Don't do that. Don't cover your head like that because it's the women who cover their heads to show that they are submissive. Women, you should do it because we want to reflect a submissive attitude among women, especially when you are praying and when you are exhorting and teaching and being about the business of telling people about Christ. So the idea that you are honoring, you're glorifying men, and it goes back to creation order. Again, he says in verse 8, for man does not originate from the woman, but woman for man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. Therefore, women ought to have a symbol of authority, and the NASB adds the word symbol there, and that goes back to really the context here in the sense that he is talking about, um, the word authority is there, but he is talking about headship and this idea of authority related to creation. So she ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And you say, wait a minute. Okay, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around what we're already talking about. What do the angels have to do with this? Well, when we think of the angels and we look at the characteristics of angels, tell me some things you know about angels. What are some characteristics of angels? What do they do they play the harp. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I mean, that's, yeah, okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, they, they praise God. They worship. Can we say worship? They worship, yes. What else, what else do they do? Yes. They're messengers. They, the word angelos in, in Greek means messenger. So they bring messages. Yes. They cover their faces in Isaiah chapter 6 to show, because they're around the throne and the glory of God. Yes. Um, It's a different phrase than I think we're talking about covering your head here, but it it seems to be somewhat related. Yes, they submit to God. They are obedient. And one of the things we see about angels, there are fallen angels who are disobedient. Fallen angels, as far as we know, don't have any means of redemption. The fallen angels that we read about in Scripture will be cast into the lake of eternal fire. And so when they look at the church, they look at it with wonder, Because the angels that look at it with wonder are obedient to the Lord, have seen other angels fall and have no hope of redemption, and they've seen man fall, and then God sends his son who dies for man and pays the penalty for his sin on the cross. So that any of us who calls out to God and said, God, please forgive me for my sin against you, he takes Christ's righteousness and places it into your account, Romans chapter 4, and takes your unrighteousness and places it into Christ's account where Christ pays for it in full on the cross and you are cleansed and you are redeemed. And angels look at that and they say, wow. And so I think there's something along here where angels are watching the church, angels who are committed to obedience, and when they see women who are rejecting God's creation, order, and the pattern he set for society and the church and marriage, or they see men who reverse the order or the roles of or, or neglect their responsibility or confuse people by acting like women, when they see that, it's God, he's saying, hey, Paul just throws it. It's, just, it's an amazing thing because Paul throws it in there as though everybody would know what he's talking about. And we look at it, and the best I think I can put together to understand is there seems to be a sense, he's saying, I'm not just saying this because God said it, I'm not just saying it because society needs to see this and that you could be a good witness, but there are angels who are watching too. And these angels, they just can't believe that you wouldn't want to honor God's creation order because he's God. And so we have verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither woman is independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. We show this interdependence here, which is, which is a, an amazing thought here, and I think it, it, it reminds us that there is this beautiful harmony and balance between men and women. If, he, if, if, if this passage stopped at verse 10... Because of the angels, and he moved on to the next subject. Boy, male chauvinists would have a heyday with this, right? But just to bring out the balance here and point out that he's not talking about male domination in society, he's saying this. He's saying, don't you forget that I've designed a creation that has important roles, and just as men are responsible to be leaders and godly in their society, who shapes those men? women. Women are primarily keepers of the home. That's their first priority, and they're there, and they have a responsibility to raise up those young men and those young women so that they see the beauty in God's creation, order, and the beauty in the different roles of men and women. That is the balance here. Yeah, women first came from Adam's rib, but there's not a man alive today who can say, yeah... We don't need women. And so when women neglect their responsibility and try and do what men have the responsibility to do, children lose out and then it has a devastating effect, effect on society. And so again, we see the interdependence and the harmony of God's design in verses 10 and 11. So that is to help us understand headship a little bit better. Verses 13 through 16, we have the practice of headship. This is where he says, this, just, just, you really need to practice headship. This just makes sense. And he starts off saying, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God? Literally to pray with her head uncovered. It's her literal head, Right? Does not even nature itself teach you that if man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Oh, is Ethan here? Where's Ethan? Uh, he asked that question two weeks ago. and I said I'd get to it, and he's going to have to listen to this. So here's the thing. What? Long hair? Oh, no. Oh, we're talking about long hair? Really? So one of the questions is, what about nature? Does not nature. What does he mean by nature? Well, when we're talking about nature, there are certain implications in nature that teach you things. Uh, and and um, for one, I mean, there are many differences between men and women. And he says, judge for yourself. We know that this word nature is used in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says, Paul said, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due, Romans 1, 26 and 27. And so we have this idea that nature teaches us certain things. Nature tells you that If you're a guy and you put on a women's swimsuit, there's something wrong with that. And even those people who say that there's nothing wrong with it, they know there's something wrong with it. Why? It's in their hearts. They can say what they want. They can write what they want. They know it's wrong. And when we think about nature when it comes to hair, and there have been all kinds of studies. I've read a lot of different things. I mean, men and women are created differently. Uh, men, and w- men have bigger lung capacity. Men have uh, 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 more red blood cells. There are all kinds of physiological differences besides chromosomes between men and women when you study them at la- you know, in generally, and even specifically. Uh, the sa- same height and weight man has a 30% bigger lung capacity than the same height and weight woman. One of the studies that I read about had to do with hair and the cycle of hair, which is growth and then settling and then losing, all right? And that's a cycle, and it happens more quickly in men. And some of you can testify to that. Um, it's, nature itself teaches you that. And you're saying, well, does this mean I can't have long hair? Well, I suppose that depends on, on how long uh, is it? Is it so long that people say, "Excuse me, ma'am"? I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, is, are, do you do you have the essence of femininity exuding from you? Because I don't think it has to do with the actual number of inches. I don't think we need to have, you know, um, you know, your hair cannot be longer than six bibles stacked this way, right? You know, <laughs> and we're using thin lines, you know, or whatever. I mean. I, I, I don't think we need to be legalistic about it. I think that just nature itself tells you that your appearance sends off a message. I get this terrible picture when I think about role reversal of Dennis Rodman and those who lived in the 1960s where he wore a wedding dress and proclaimed that he married himself. Um, and besides the fact that he played for the Bulls. But the... the, 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 the You know, it's so vulgar, and it's a shock thing. And, And people in society do things to shock you, to think, oh, this is so out there, in hopes that you'll be drug along to their agenda of liberalism and defiance against a creator God. But ultimately, it still is clear that that's just not right. Nature itself tells us that, that if a woman's hair has long hair, it's a glory to her, for hair is given to her for a covering, if one is inclined to be contentious, contentious, he says in verse 16, but, which just kind of brings us to a, uh, a closing here, if, if you don't like this and you're going to fight against me on this, Paul says, if you're going to be contentious, contentious, he says, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. In other words, his conclusion is that, you know, um, the teaching of the church, the teaching of the word of God, is clear. This goes back to creation, and the idea of different roles is just what is taught. There's no other teaching that we have, there's no other custom we can give you. If you want to rebel against the apostles' teaching and what the church did, you can do that, but you're being contentious. Five minutes, and I know we have some questions, I just don't know where they're at. I I really I want to try and 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 we can come back to this. I'm going I'm going I'm not going to be here next week, but I'll come back in in 2 or 3 weeks and and uh we'll move on to communion, but if this if if you're really confused, if this just keeps your head spinning, um we can come back to this. But what questions do you have related to this text? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so what is, the question is, I guess, we talked about the workplace, but what does this look like in Christian fellowship or, 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 yeah. I think really honoring one another and men, I mean, men, you really have a responsibility with the way you dress, the appearance that you give, but especially your attitude, that if there's immorality going on around you and you're not standing up, and saying, this is not the way it should be, and I'm going to be a, a, a leader here. I'm, I, yeah, I look the part because I believe it. All right? If you're wearing a dress and have all kinds of feminine things that, that exude from you, it's hard for you to actually do that. And I think that's the relationship Paul's saying here. And I think there was a cultural thing that it, somehow in the church, when men covered their head, the society was saying, what is that? These, the, Christians are just a bunch of women men who act like women. And his call here is for genuine, male, masculine, godly leadership. And women, I think there is a, a way in which you can honor men. It doesn't mean that you are just there as a, a, to, to actually just uh, be abused by men. And I don't want to give that kind of idea whatsoever. But there is a certain honor that when people who are in this world come and visit, you guys interacting with each other, they're saying, there's just something that is so foreign to me, and it's really beautiful, the respect and that, that, that these young girls have for these men, or these older women have for these men, and the way the men really cherish and respect all women, but guide them and stand up. They're real men. Okay, so I think, does that answer your question? That's, that's at the heart of this passage. Other questions? AJ. I just wanted to kind of clarify what you're hearing. it sounds like the call, it's for us to be examples. So we talk about leadership is often seen as domination. Mm hmm. So I guess your question is, is the implication of this is for us to really honor God and one another in society? Yeah. And I think the picture, the closest picture I could have in our culture that exudes this would be a wedding ceremony. Because when when sometimes when people come to me and say, we want a Christian wedding ceremony, I say, what do you mean by that? Because this is what it looks like. You're going to say, you're going to say, people are going to say... you know the pastor's going to get in front of the congregation. Is going to say these people are doing it differently than everybody else in the world, and these people are going to are going to have uh, pattern their marriage after something else. And the pattern is Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. And this is the template. This is the model. And so that when people ask you why does your marriage work, you say because we didn't make up our own rules. We followed the pattern set before God, and that's we follow the example of Christ and his church. And we say that in word, and then you do that in action. But in a wedding ceremony, we do that in appearance. Because I'm telling you, if you go to a wedding, and both the bride and groom show up in tuxedos, there is a message in our culture that something is not biblical here. You say, what, I can't wear a tuxedo if I'm a woman? No, you can. But why? And what message are you supposed to say? Because in our culture... That sends a different message. It sends a Dennis Rodman wedding dress message, which is just, it's shocking. It's anti-biblical. It's anti-God. It's anti-God's design. You say it's just clothing. I think that's part of what was going on here in Corinth. Yeah, it's just the appearance, but the appearance is an example of really what's going on in your heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us through this passage, which when we first read it three weeks ago, just had all kinds of question marks. I pray, Lord, that you have not only brought us to a point where we understand it a little bit better, but that where we could explain it to others and live in such a way that really honors the God who has a design that is so rejected by this world that it's shocking for the world to see the way we interact with each other. And I pray that we can do that in such a way that helps them to see what they're missing out on. They're missing out on a genuine, pure, delightful relationship with a holy God who continues to purify his church. Do that in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.